0: Oh no, I know who my neighbor is. I understand that I am supposed to broaden that out. That certainly isn't only ethnic Jews. And now it's extended to the Gentiles. And yes, I'm supposed to love everyone. Yes, that's true. But how about that love that you're supposed to be showing towards that homosexual activist that you hate? Or that abortionist whom you despise? Now, I'm not saying, and we'll flesh this out, that you can't hate what's going on. You can't recognize that as evil and sinful. But despising someone in our heart, a hatred of them, is absolutely unallowable in Scripture at any time for any person. We be very careful with
1: that. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church, located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 43 through 48. It is a, a joy to be back in the pulpit this morning, but I, I must say that I had a, it was just a, a delight to to hear all of the good preaching last weekend, for the solo conference to just come and be blessed by that. I want to thank everyone who was involved in that, but I particularly want to thank Ron, who put so much work into that. So when you see him, make sure you thank him for that. Uh, and so I just had the precious privilege of coming, and, and I got to chauffeur Phil Johnson, a friend of mine, around and eat dinner and, and do all kinds of fun things and hear the Word of God. It is a refreshment to my own soul, and I know you guys know this, but uh, to, to hear the word well preached, and oftentimes I, I perhaps don't get as much of that as I should. And so that just last weekend, just to be immersed, I mean, what better way to spend a weekend And we have Friday night and Saturday and Sunday just to be poured into... Uh, if you didn't, if you weren't, weren't able to be there, I just would urge you to get those messages, every one of them powerful and impactful because they were brought from the word of God. So again, thanks for all. And and I just, am myself spiritually refreshed from that weekend, Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Please be seated. For God so loved the world, yes, you can quote it with me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen. Now, you know the verse, most of you. The question this morning is, do you believe the verse? Do you believe that God is love? Do you understand what it means that God is love? And perhaps most importantly, do you love God? like he loves. Because that's the point of our message this morning. Really, Jesus, is fin- Jesus finishes out the discussion on having a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees by ending with the most fundamental aspect of righteousness, and that is love. You know what the scripture says, that if you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commandments. But we must understand that love and obedience are not the same. Love motivates obedience. Obedience then drives greater love as we see God do his work. But the question this morning is, do we love. And unfortunately, I think perhaps in the circles in which, reform circles perhaps, and many from where many of you come, there has been maybe a, a lesser emphasis on the love of God because of how much that has been misrepresented in the presentation of the gospel in the last 40 or 50 years. And so it has become a very unfortunate fact that sometimes we can even have gospel presentations where the love of God isn't even mentioned, as though it were something to shy away from or be afraid of because it has been ri- misrepresented by some We cannot present the gospel. We cannot present the kingdom. We cannot live within the kingdom unless we understand what love is. The world desperately needs to know that God is love. And as such, his love flows through every part of his nature and to every one of his creatures. God's love is perfect, holy, just. It is compassionate and gracious so that it is extended in proper measure and perfect timing in every situation. Our love, by contrast, tends to be conditional, petty, selfish, and most certainly limited. But as kingdom citizens, we have the precious privilege of being loved by the king and being empowered by that king to love others with his unquenchable love. This is the primary way in which the world will know the greatness of the kingdom and will be drawn to come underneath our great and mighty king. You see, we don't need gimmicks. We don't need entertainment. We don't need cultural conformity to demonstrate the greatness of God's kingdom. We need the love of the King. And that love must be expressed to one another and out towards a dying world. And in fact, all of those other things the gimmicks, the entertainments, all the things that the church is seeking to do in our age are really a mask for the fact that we do not love. And when we do not love, it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter what kind of show or production we put on, it is ineffective. And that, unfortunately, is what is happening to the church today. Because there is not genuine love, because we have lost the understanding of what it means that God is love and that we are to love in such a way as he has loved us, therefore we have to add all of these other things to somehow draw people to the kingdom. Imagine! Imagine having to kind of cajole people to come into the kingdom when if we would pour out love for them by the Lord's grace, and as he is working, they will be drawn to us like a moth to a flame. That's the nature of the kingdom. And that is what Jesus proclaims as he finishes out this part of the Sermon on the Mount, discussing what it is to love, why it is that we love, and what that love looks like. So, what we'll see this morning is that only when kingdom citizens begin to understand, appreciate, and partake of the love of the king will they be able to extend that love in a powerful way that draws people into the kingdom. Only when the kingdom citizen begins to understand, appreciate, and partake of the love of the king. Will they be able to extend that love in a powerful way that draws people into the kingdom? Now, it's important because we are working verse by verse that I again remind you of where we stand in our text. Many months ago, we began the Sermon on the Mount, and we began it with Jesus really laying out the qualifications for what it means to be in the kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle, and so on, the Beatitudes. That's the heart attitude of everyone who is in the kingdom. And essentially it's what's necessary to be in the kingdom. And it is what the spirit of God produces through the word of God. When he regenerates the heart and there's response and repentance and faith. Then in verse 13 of Matthew chapter five, he began to transition into discussing how it is that that kingdom impacts the world. That's the nature of kingdom citizens. But what are they to do in the world where they are to be salt and light salt to a world that doesn't taste Christ light to a world that doesn't see Christ properly, and we are to reflect that to them. And then in verse 20, he began to lay out how it is that the kingdom citizens will actually accomplish that. And it certainly will not be with a self-righteousness, with a righteousness that is drawn from our own internal reservoir, as it were, of our human effort. It will only come from a righteousness that surpasses, he says in verse 20, that of the scribes and Pharisees, because their righteousness was self-generated. It was a self-righteous righteousness, and therefore no true righteousness at all. And so he lays out a series of contrasts. That is, he, he picks up things that the scribes and Pharisees were teaching, really perversions of Old Testament teaching, and he brings, Jesus brings his own explanation and fulfillment to those. That is, teaching what truly the Old Testament taught, and then what is fleshed out in the New Testament, and what he himself fulfills and empowers. And he began by saying, murder equals anger. And so we have to reconcile and forgive, not just not kill people physically. He says adultery equals lust. So we have to radically amputate lust within the heart, not just stop committing adultery externally. He said divorce equals adultery. And so we need to remain faithful to our first lives, not simply writing certificates of divorce to get ourselves off the hook. He says that vows are actually promises to and before a holy God. So we are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And the fifth illustration that we have spent multiple weeks looking at is, is the exhortation, the old Testament principle of an eye for an eye It means we, we may not hold grudges. We may not take our own revenge. And so we are to overcome evil with good. But now I think by no accident, he comes really to the crux of the matter in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And so the sixth and final challenge that Jesus brings comes against the shallow, worldly righteousness of the religious leaders, which caused them to pervert even the concept of love. Of course, that is why it is so important that we understand it, because it is not as though love, just the word proclaimed, somehow is, has some kind of magical or mystical impact in and of itself. Just love! If we don't understand what that means, then we aren't able to love. Either we will love self-righteously and selfishly, or we will love in, in order to somehow gain Approval before a holy God instead of loving as he loves, loving in response to the love that he has given. So, first, let's look at the Pharisees' perversion of this law of love. What was being preached at the time, Jesus will then bring proper correction to. So, the Pharisees' perversion starts off seeming pretty good, as it did in several of the other illustrations that Jesus uses. He says, You have heard that it was said. And that, again, remember, that means this is the common teaching in Israel now. This is what your religious leaders are teaching you, drawn from the Old Testament, and there's a tradition of this. It's not just the latest teaching, not the latest rage. Apparently, this has been being taught for quite some time. It is in the spiritual culture. You have heard that it was said. And by the way, there's many things like that today. Go to the internet, go to things that you've heard 20 or 30 times. You you hear people say certain phrases that may or may not even be correct, but we just have been taught them over and over, so we say them. That's essentially what's going on here. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. This is what the religious leaders are saying. And again, it starts off pretty well. Love your neighbor. Yeah. I mean, sure. We understand that. Now he's going to give a second phrase here, but first let's just look at that for a moment, right? You shall love. The word is agape or agapao, which is is a godly love, the love that is generated by the spirit of God in the heart of the believer. Now he's going to use it with several different nuances throughout our text. And certainly when he's speaking of unbelievers, they don't have that godly generated love. They have an echo of it, as we will see. Nonetheless, he is speaking of this godly love. That is how Jesus is addressing this. He's not using some of the other words for love that he might use. He is using a godly love that is generated by the Spirit of God in the heart of the believer. He says... You are saying you shall love your neighbor. And really neighbor, very basic word. Someone who lives close by. You know what neighbors are. Now, you never see them in our day and age. All you see is the garage door closing. <laughs> That's about all we see. But nonetheless, all right, it's the people that are around you. And probably more specifically, it's anyone you come in contact with. And maybe even, even more to broaden this a bit, I think in our understanding, it's anyone you are aware of. Because essentially neighbors can live across the world if you're aware of them and praying for them. So it's anyone that really comes into your range of consciousness. I mean, it's it's very broad as Jesus describes it later on. Now, we're going to see that the Pharisees weren't using it that way, but biblically speaking, that's what it is. It's anyone that is in your sphere of influence that you are aware of or that you bring before your mind or comes into your path. You shall love your neighbor. Now, this is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, it's very interesting. It's like Jesus is working through the Old Testament, taking each of their teachings. What was this? What have we been just discussing the past weeks? The idea that you can't bear a grudge, that you can't take vengeance. Well, now Jesus is moving underneath that to address the reason that they could even misrepresent eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's because they didn't love and they didn't understand what it meant. And so they perverted it into really a selfish pursuit selfish love it's an oxymoron isn't it and that's what we will see that the pharisees did but again they're taking it from the old testament you shall love your neighbor now interestingly enough when jesus quotes what they were saying essentially again he's quoting what the pharisees were teaching he he leaves out as yourself notice that jesus he says you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor now the quote from leviticus 19 says love your neighbor as yourself It's hard to know whether Jesus was simply just representing that common teaching and that leaving out as yourself isn't really important, but it may be that he indicates or that the the dropping of this phrase by the religious leaders is purposeful. That is that they wouldn't even allow love to be elevated to the point of that you should love someone else as much as you care for yourself. That's possible. Because it certainly is true that the religious leaders did not love others as themselves. They didn't even reach that. In fact, they loved themselves far more than they loved anyone else. And so it would seem merely that even in their expressions of love, it was kind of a condescending love. We're great, you're little, and we might give you some leftovers. We might throw you some scraps. Now, the closer you are to us, as we will see, you might get a little bit more love. But love you as I love me, or in the way I care for myself, in the way I view myself. Now, whether or not they were proclaiming that, I think that perhaps in the dropping of the phrase as yourself, Jesus is at least implying that. Love your neighbor, great, but not even to the extent that you would love you. And isn't that true for us? Yeah, we'll give a little bit of love here or there, but it's not nearly the love we give to ourselves. We care for ourselves. we, We know what we want. We know what we desire. We pursue those things with reckless abandon. So, the, even the quote here is not up to fully what the Bible even said. It's a misquote that the Pharisees had that Jesus is quoting them in. So, you shall love your neighbor. Now, it's it it, important for us to understand that the scribes and Pharisees, were. we don't know exactly how they were teaching this, but we do know that at least some of them, and really in, in general, it was understood that love undergirded the law. That's not simply a New Testament concept. The idea that it is love which generates obedience is certainly, it was preached in the Old Testament, it's written there, and it was understood by many of the teachers of the day. We know this from passages like Mark chapter 12, verse 31, where there is a scribe who confronts Jesus, really trying to trip him up, and says, what's the greatest commandment? You remember how Jesus answers that? He says, first commandment is, or the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two went hand in hand. There is no other commandment greater than these. All right. And actually this is, this is, so this is Jesus responding to the scribe and the scribe says to him, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all your heart and with all understanding and with all strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. So you see that there was an understanding of this, that, that love undergirds the reality of the law. But the Pharisees, even, even with that, had perverted this teaching, as we will see, to a very narrow bandwidth of people that you would even extend any love to at all. And in fact, they had added a piece to it that the, that the law did not specifically state, which we'll look at in a minute, That is, that it is okay, or really that you should then, as kind of a corollary to loving your neighbor, that you are to hate your enemy. And if you look through the through the New Testament, you will see that everywhere love is presented as that which undergirds obedience, as that which enables obedience to the commands of God. Romans thirteen eight, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that the second of the great commandments really sums up the first. You cannot love your neighbor if you do not love God. Again, with the true scriptural understanding of that word, love. Love, Paul goes on to say in verse 10 of Romans 13, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James uses a very interesting phraseology for this idea of, of loving your neighbor. He says, if however... You are fulfilling the royal law. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So certainly this is fleshed out in the New Testament, understood by many, even understood by those who weren't directly coming underneath Jesus's teaching very often. So how did they pervert this? What were they actually doing that kept them from living out the ramifications of the things that many of them actually understood? Well, it seems that the second phrase kind of illuminates for us how they were misunderstanding love your neighbor because, really, so when it says love your neighbor, that's imperative. You must love your neighbor. Fascinatingly enough, as we move to the second statement in verse 43, and hate your enemy, the hate here is also imperative. That is its command. You must love your neighbor and you must hate your enemy. It's not just like kind of in contrast, you know, you love your neighbor. And so anyone who's not your neighbor, you don't like as much. Now this is, this is hate your neighbor. You must express hatred towards them. All right, a dislike for, all right, to put in disfavor or disregard. And your enemy simply is one who hates you, one who is hostile to you, one who desires your injury. Now, how could they get away with this? Or certainly, again, they'd read the Bible and the people they're speaking to would understand what the Old Testament said, or at least would have a knowledge of it. So how could they preach this and still have people think they were holy? Well, I think there's three pieces to it, and you just kind of have to write them in wherever you can. There's not a, an outline spot for them. But the Pharisees could teach this, I think, for three reasons. One is because I do think they generally perverted the Old Testament understanding of love. Because the Old Testament does speak to the fact that you are to love your enemy. That's not going to be brand new teaching when Jesus, when Jesus states it. Job 31, remember Job was written in the time of the patriarchs before the Mosaic Law, Right? In the time of Abraham, most likely. Job says this, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Job understood you're not supposed to hate your enemy. You're not supposed to rejoice when your enemy falls, right? So Job understands this. How about Psalm 35? This is David speaking. He's speaking of his enemies, those who have harmed him and are persecuting him. And he says, they, that is his enemies, repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they are sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. Very interesting. As we look at our passage of what it means to love an enemy, David is doing that. He is praying for his enemies in the old Testament. So certainly again, this was understood that even those who hated him, when they were sick, he was praying for them and he was, he was Crying out, he was humbling his own soul towards them. He continues on in verse 14. I bowed down in mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. So I think the Pharisees were conveniently overlooking certain portions of the Old Testament that they didn't like. I do think that's clear because the Jews were known, and particularly during the time of Jesus, and and certainly even before then, for hating other races for being condescending and arrogant and despising of anyone who wasn't a Jew. They had really raised this to a national pastime. Right? So that's what was going on. Somehow the Pharisees, overlooking clear teaching of the Old Testament, had drawn out that idea. And, and the reason is, then, for these, the two other uh, pieces of this puzzle as to how they could say, hate your enemy, I think they also had perverted the view of what a neighbor is that they had managed to narrow that to such a small portion of people that they were able to hate most people and love just a few. And I think this is drawn out in Luke chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there so you see it with me. Luke chapter 10. Again, another discussion on the nature of, of obedience and what are the greatest commandments. In Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 26 or verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Always. They were coming after Jesus, trying to get him to, to go against the old Testament or go against uh, what God had said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As though this man wanted to know. But anyway, that's, a, that's another discussion. Verse 26. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So Jesus just fires back. All right. You're a lawyer. What's in the law? Why are you asking me? You're the one that specializes. Remember, a lawyer back then was not someone who you know, took people to court for traffic violations. A lawyer was someone who knew the law of God, or supposedly knew it. And he said, or, and he answered, the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You see that they understood that love was the basis of the law. However, all right, Jesus says, and he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Fascinating verse 29. Look, listen to what the lawyer says but wishing to justify himself. And the answer is to whom? Hadn't Jesus just said, you're doing well? Yeah, but that last phrase, do this and you will live. I think the implication is, yeah, you know the truth, but you're not doing it. Because instantly this lawyer comes back and says, to justify himself, he said to Jesus, "Um, who is my neighbor? Because instantly jumping into the mind of the lawyer were all the people that he didn't care for, that, that he didn't love, that he wasn't giving himself for, and he wanted to make sure he got that out of the way, he could justify that. Now, that was the wrong thing to say. Jesus lays out then who his neighbor really is. And that essentially, again, is anyone who is in need. And then he goes further to say, and you essentially religious leaders are ignoring your neighbors, hating them and despising them, the ones in need, while someone like a Samaritan whom you despise is actually the one who loves his neighbor. So you're not justified at all. Nice try. Wishing to justify himself. And that's what the Pharisees were doing in this teaching. Love your neighbor, sure. But your neighbor is only essentially a Jew And then even, even stronger than that, your neighbor is a Jew who is living according to Pharisaical teaching. The closer you were to the Pharisees, the more you looked like them, the better Jew you were, the more love that you received, but everyone else was hated. And that's kind of the third piece to this puzzle. They would have said, I believe, and and essentially have, have implied that the reason that they hated everyone else is because God did. God hated everyone who wasn't a Jew. God hated everyone who wasn't, in a, in a certain capacity, according to His law. That was their teaching. That isn't the truth, but it was drawn from a perversion of, of a perverted view of God's hatred of sin, because there certainly are, are verses in the Old Testament, places in the Old Testament where it speaks of God hating sin and of hating sinners and of bringing His judgment upon them. So it seems like they were perverting that to then teach. Look, you love your neighbor who is a Jew. Living that is living according to the way we interpret the law, and everyone else you can hate because God hates them too—gentiles, tax collectors, anyone who isn't us. For example, ex, uh, Exodus 17:14, the Lord said to Moses, "Write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua. I will surely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, a nation that had come against Israel." Say, so "I'm going I'm to wipe them all out eternally." Essentially, I'm going to wipe them out. Psalm 41:10. But you, O Lord, and, and you know you might be aware of the whole series of imprecatory psalms where crying out vengeance upon the enemies of God. Psalm 41.10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, raise me up, that I may repay them, that is, the enemies. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. I can hate my enemy. It seems that they were saying. And then Psalm 139, maybe even more clearly, verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you? oh Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. So it seem that the Pharisees are drawing strongly from that stream to say, yeah, you love your neighbors who is this very small group of people, ethnic Jews, who are in agreement with our teaching, and you can hate everyone else because God hates them too. You might be sitting here going, ooh, maybe the Pharisees were right. No, they weren't. Jesus says, "But I say to you, they were not right. Why not? That's a little bit more complex, right? What what does it mean that God hates sin and sinners? Well, we're just going to get that started this morning. We'll we'll flush it out a little bit more next week. But this kind of as an overview. Right? There must be a distinction made between God's judicial dealings with sinful men, His hatred of evil, and His love for those whom He has created. Even as God judges, hear me carefully. He never personally despises or vindictively hates those even upon whom he is placing his judgment. His hate is righteous and judicial. He does not look at sinners and go, I despise you. As in, I am the great God and you are nothing from the standpoint of of dishonoring them, as it were. They are his creatures. He cares for them and he requires the same of us. We may never look at even the most vile sinner and say, you are somehow less than me. I hate you. You are, you are on a lower level than I. I'm going to dishonor you. It's never the hatred of God. His hatred is of sin. And yes, of those who commit it from the standpoint of those who have broken his holy law, not only a despising of them and somehow viewing them as worthless. Again, all creatures and all people in comparison with God are nothing. He says that. But all creatures and all people are in one boat when it comes to God's love of them and his care of them in a general sense. And the general sense I'm speaking of is this, Psalm 145, verse 15. The Lord, the eyes of the Lord, excuse me, the eyes of all look to you. Now that includes even the creation even the animals and the birds and the spirit, you know, all of that, the eyes of all look to you and you give them food in due time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God does not despise his creation, even his fallen creation and his fallen creatures. Now, when we begin to think of it in that light, I would have to say that it's not only the Pharisees who struggle with this. Certainly this has been the, 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 nature of man down throughout, to hate and despise others who are not the same as himself. Other races, uh, uh, all, all diff- every different kind of variety of people, there's hatred and despising of them because that's what lies within the sinful heart of man, and unfortunately lies even within believers because of the flesh that remains. So I think we are preaching to ourselves, or Jesus is preaching to us, when he then brings the corrective, Oh no, I know who my neighbor is. I understand that I am supposed to broaden that out. That certainly isn't only ethnic Jews. And now it's extended to the Gentiles. And yes, I'm supposed to love everyone. Yes, that's true. But how about that love that you're supposed to be showing towards that homosexual activist that you hate? Or that abortionist whom you despise. Now, I'm not saying, and we'll flesh this out, that you can't hate what's going on. that You can't recognize that as evil and sinful. But despising someone in our heart, a hatred of them, is absolutely unallowable in scripture at any time for any person. Be very careful with this because our hatred of sin so easily tips over into a true despising of others.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.